Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the newspapers and big headlines over the week in place of bets and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. Pay-Per-View, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Podcasts, and now streaming on the iconic media platform. Well, there's only one place to start this week, isn't there? And that's the attack on Iran by America. Specifically, the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani, the result of an airstrike Friday. And there's a lot to talk about with this. And I'm going to start with this in The Guardian. U.S. kills Iran general Qasem Soleimani in strike ordered by Trump. Donald Trump ordered an airstrike that killed Iran's most powerful general in the early hours of Friday in a dramatic escalation of an already bloody struggle between Washington and Tehran for an influence across the region. Qasem Soleimani was hit by the drone strike while local allies from the popular mobilization forces drove him from Baghdad airport. The de facto leader of the PMF, Abu Mahdi Umahandis, a close Soleimani associate, was also killed in the attack. General Soleimani was actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region, a Pentagon statement said. This strike was aimed at deterring future Iranian attack plans. Of course, we've only got the Pentagon's word for that. The article continues. Minutes before the announcement, Trump tweeted the U.S. flag without comment. Later, the White House put out a statement saying the strike was a decisive defensive action carried out by the direction of the president. The Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, said in a statement, Soleimani's martyrdom will make Iran more decisive to resist America's expansionism and to defend our Islamic values. With no doubt, Iran and other freedom-seeking countries in the region will take his revenge. Iran's foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, said on Twitter, the U.S.'s act of international terrorism, targeting and assassinating General Soleimani, the most effective force fighting Daesh or ISIS, al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, etc., is extremely dangerous and foolish escalation. The U.S. bears responsibility for all consequences of its rogue adventurism. The article continues. Tehran's Lebanon-based ally Hezbollah also promised to avenge the killing. In Iraq, Hadi Al-Amari, an Iran ally and head of the paramilitary Badr organization, called on all Iraqi factions to expel foreign troops. No Iranian official detailed what type of retaliation was being planned or for when. Washington and its regional allies, Israel and Saudi Arabia, who also see Tehran as an arch foe, all braced for potential reprisals. Regional allies, Israel. I'll come back to that later on. More than just regional allies. The article continues. The US Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden said Trump had tossed a stick of dynamite into a tinderbox. His fellow Democratic hopefuls Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders warned the attack could spark a disastrous new war in the Middle East. That's been the plan all along. All these Middle East conflicts are long planned, as I'll talk about later. Soleimani was commander of the Quds Force, the elite external wing of Iran's Revolutionary Guards, with the Trump administration designated a terrorist organization in April last year. The Pentagon statement accused the Quds Force of being responsible for the deaths of the hundreds of U.S. service members and the wounding of thousands more. Many consider Soleimani to have been the second most powerful person in Iran, behind Khomeini and arguably ahead of Rouhani. Through a mix of security operations and diplomatic coercion, he has been more responsible than anyone else for projecting Iran's influence in the region. This has been led in Iraq, but also by establishing a seemingly permanent military foothold in war-torn Syria, linking Tehran to the Mediterranean and a land border with Israel. Hours after his death on Friday, Soleimani's position was filled by a deputy commander, 
Brigadier General Esmail Ghani, Iranian media reported. The assassination have followed a tit-for-tat series of strikes by the US and Iran protagonists in Iraq since late 2006. Soleimani had been central to almost all that Iran did and senior officials under Barack Obama considered him close to untouchable. The strike came at a time when Iraq was already on the brink of an all-out proxy war and hours after a two-day siege of the US Embassy in Baghdad by a mob of PMF militants and their supporters. The Pentagon accused Soleimani of having masterminded the mob attack. That siege followed US airstrikes on camps run by a PMF-affiliated militia, particularly closely aligned with Tehran, which in turn was a reprisal for that militia's killing of a US contractor in an attack on an Iraqi army base on Friday. The U.S. has deployed 750 airborne troops to Kuwait as a rapid reaction force available for use in Iraq, and officials have said up to 3,000 could be sent in the coming days. The Defense Secretary Mike Esper said on Thursday that more militia attacks were expected and the U.S. reserved the right to take preemptive action to stop them. There are some indications out there that they may be planning additional attacks, Esper said. If we get word of attacks, it will take preemptive action as well to protect American forces, protect American lives. The game has changed. After the targeted killing, the U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo posted a video he said showed Iraqis dancing in the street, thankful that General Soleimani is no more. However, Soleimani's death leaves Iraq and the region on the brink of a new upsurge in violence with Trump's and Khomeini's moves and counter moves hard to predict. Trump authorized the strike at a time when the U.S. Congress was in recess, and the White House framed the action as an act of self-defense in the context of counterterrorism operations, but Democrats and perhaps some Republicans in Congress will see it as a usurpation of the legislature's authority to decide matters of war and peace. One reason we don't generally assassinate foreign political officials is the belief that such action will get more, not less, Americans killed. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy said on Twitter, that should be our real pressing and grave worry tonight. Department of Defense released a statement saying, at the direction of the president, the U.S. military has taken decisive defensive action attacking action, in truth, to protect U.S. personnel abroad by killing Qassam Soleimani, the head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force, a U.S.-designated foreign terrorist organization. General Soleimani was actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region. What's ironic about this is America has long planned to attack Iran. It's the irony here. General Soleimani and his Quds Force were responsible for the deaths of hundreds of American and coalition service members and the wounding of thousands more. He had orchestrated attacks on coalition bases in Iraq over the last several months, including the attack on December 27th, culminating in the death and wounding of additional American and Iraqi personnel. General Soleimani also approved the attacks on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad that took place this week. The strike was aimed at deterring future Iranian attack plans. No, it was not at all. The idea is to try to provoke Iran to justify a conflict. The reasons I'll get to in a minute. The United States will continue to take all necessary action to protect our people and our interests wherever they are around the world. That's why the United States government is taking action to provoke Iran to try to kick off a massive conflict involving America, Iran, a lot of the time with world leaders. If you just reverse what they say, you actually get to the truth. There's an article here on the BBC website. Iran's Qasem Soleimani, why the US had him in its sights. I'm not going to get the real reason in this BBC article, but there's some interesting things in it. Next to Iran's supreme leader, Qasem Soleimani was arguably the most powerful figure in the Islamic Republic. As head of its military abroad, and known as the Quds Force, Soleimani was the mastermind behind the country's activities across it 
in the Middle East and its real foreign minister when it came to matters of war and peace. He was widely considered an architect of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's war against rebels in Syria, the rise of pro-Iranian paramilitaries in Iraq and the fight against Islamic State group and many battles beyond. And that's one of the reasons why the West had a problem with Soleimani and why they have a problem with Assad and Putin, as I've said before, because those three have actually managed to push ISIS back because they've actually been trying. The West doesn't want to stop ISIS. It wants it to advance, especially into Syria, as I'll get to in a minute. So anyone actually stopping ISIS is a problem for the West. Thus, they demonize Assad and Putin, who actually do that, as opposed to talking about it and using it as an excuse to invade country after country. The article continues. Charismatic and often elusive, the silver-haired commander was revered by some and loathed by others, not least the West, and a source of myths and social media memes. He had emerged in recent years from a lifetime in the shadows directing covert operations to achieve fame and popularity in Iran, becoming the subject of documentaries, news reports, and even pop songs. As far back as 2013, former CIA officer John McGuire told the New Yorker that Soleimani was the single most powerful operative in the Middle East. I would massively disagree with that, because the single most powerful operative in the Middle East would have to be found in Israel. The article continues. When his end came, it was violent and sudden. On the 3rd of January, the Pentagon announced that it had carried out a successful operation to kill him at the direction of U.S. President Donald Trump. The assassination followed a sharp escalation between the U.S., Iran, and Iran-backed groups in Iraq following the death of a U.S. military contractor in a missile attack on a U.S. base in Iraq for which the U.S. held Iran responsible. The U.S. responded with an airstrike on the Iran-backed militia Kataib Hezbollah. Militia supporters then attacked the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Tensions between the U.S. and Iran have been rising since the U.S. pulled out of a nuclear deal between Iran and world powers to curb Iran's nuclear program and prevent it from developing nuclear weapons. The U.S. has also reimposed sanctions on Iran, sending its economy into freefall. All part of prodding Iran and poking Iran to try to get them to take some kind of response, preferably a military response from America's perspective. I talk about Trump pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. In episode 16, Soleimani is believed to have come from a poor background and to have had very little formal education, but he has risen through the Revolutionary Guards, Iran's elite and most powerful force, and was reportedly close to Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. After becoming commander of the Quds Force in 1998, Soleimani attempted to extend Iran's influence in the Middle East by carrying out covert operations, providing arms to allies and developing networks of militias loyal to Iran. Over the course of his career, he is believed to have aided Shia, Muslim and Kurdish groups in Iraq, fighting against former dictator Saddam Hussein as well as other groups in the region, including the Shia militant group Hezbollah in Lebanon and Islamist organization Hamas in the Palestinian territories. After the US invaded Iraq in 2003, on a lie, he began directing militant groups to carry out attacks against US troops and bases, killing hundreds. The reason or the justification for invading Iraq was, of course, weapons of mass destruction, which Bush and Blair knew were not there, as the Chilcot report found. And now, of course, we're being told that Iran is a nuclear threat. It's just a repeat of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. The irony of this is, coming back to Israel, which is the real force behind all this. Israel 
has not signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and has a big military arsenal. It has the second biggest F-16 fleet in the world outside of America. And of course, Britain and America are always arming Israel as they're always arming Saudi Arabia. But they don't talk about that. That stays silent. Iraq's got weapons of mass destruction. We need to invade. Iran's a nuclear threat. We need to conflict with them. It's what I call moral outrage for hire. You condemn something and then you support it or do it on another occasion when it suits you. The article continues. He is also widely credited with finding a strategy for Bashar al-Assad to respond to the armed uprising against him that began in 2011. Iranian assistance along with Russian air support helped turn the tide against rebel forces in the Syrian government's favour, allowing it to recapture key citizens' hands. Soleimani himself was sometimes pictured at funerals of Iranians killed in Syria and Iraq, where Iran had deployed thousands of combatants and military advisors. He also travelled frequently across the region, regularly shuttling between Lebanon, Syria and Iraq, where Iranian influence is steadily grown. When he was killed, he was travelling in a two-car convoy away from Baghdad airport with others, including Kataib Hezbollah leader Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, who was also killed. In April 2019, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, elite Zionist, designated Iran's Revolutionary Guards and Quds Force as foreign terrorist organizations. The Trump administration has said the Quds Force provided funding, training, weapons and equipment to U.S.-designated terrorist groups in the Middle East, including Hezbollah Movement and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group based in Gaza. What about the Israeli Defense Forces? They're a terrorist group, but it's Israel. Can't talk about them. In a statement, the Pentagon said Soleimani had been actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region. General Soleimani, I read just now. How did the strike take place and who was killed? Soleimani and officials from Iran-backed militias were leaving Baghdad airport in two cars when they were hit by a U.S. drone strike near a cargo area. The commander reportedly flown in from Lebanon or Syria. Several missiles struck the convoy and at least seven people are believed to have died. Iran's Revolutionary Guards said Iraqi militia leader Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis was among those killed. Mahandis commanded the Iranian-backed Khatib Hezbollah group, which Washington blamed for a rocket attack which killed a U.S. civilian contractor in northern Iraq last Friday. Now this is interesting. This is an analysis by Lise Doucet, who's a chief international correspondent for the BBC. Iran's most powerful military figure was regarded as the strategic mastermind behind its vast ambition in the Middle East and the country's real foreign minister when it came to matters of war and peace. As commander of elite special forces, he orchestrated covert operations involving a web of proxy militias across the region. He also commanded political influence inside Iran and was regarded as second only to Iran's all-powerful supreme leader. He was widely considered the architect of President Bashar al-Assad's war in Syria, the ongoing conflicts in Iraq, the fight against Islamic State and many battles beyond. The silver-haired general with a close-cropped beard was a cult hero for his fighters in the face of evil for his foes. For years, U.S. officials considered killing a cunning adversary who ordered attacks on their forces and taunted them with social media barbs. Now, the reason they have killed him is all part of trying to start a conflict with Iran. At times, some of their aims were aligned, including in the fight against Islamic State. They weren't aligned. The West doesn't want to stop Islamic State. It wants them to continue. But they remain sworn enemies, not least for that reason alone. 
Iranian officials are categorical. This is an act of war to be met by harsh retaliation. Iran has many ways and means to strike back as a long simmering crisis suddenly moves to a new dangerous chapter. Foreign Minister Javad Zarif called the attack an act of international terrorism, tweeting the US bears responsibility for all consequences of its rogue adventurism. <sighs> President Hassan Rouhani said in a statement, Iran and the other free nations of the region will take revenge for this gruesome crime from criminal America. His death, Rouhani added, redoubled Iran's determination to stand against America's bullying. General Esmail Khani, deputy head of the Revolutionary Guard's Foreign Operations Arm, was named as Soleimani's successor by Ayatollah Khomeini. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said America had the right to defend itself and praised President Trump for acting swiftly, forcefully and decisively. I love it. That's what Israel says when the equivalent of a pop gun comes over from Palestine to Israel after Israel's state-of-the-art weaponry has attacked Palestine. Later on Friday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the strike was lawful and saved lives. Killed a few as well. He told Fox News, we do not seek war with Iran, lie, but we will not stand by and see American lives put at risk. Well, a lot more American lives would not be put at risk without this attack on Iran in terms of the long-term possible implications of it. The Trump administration has alleged that the Quds Force is Iran's primary mechanism for cultivating and supporting US-designated terrorist groups, as opposed to US and Israel and Britain created terrorist groups, like Syrian rebels, across the Middle East, including Lebanon's Hezbollah movement and Palestinian Islamic Jihad by providing funding, training, weapons and equipment. And the last article here, before I go into more detail about all this. This is in the Daily Mail. Israel knew, UK didn't. I love it. Benjamin Netanyahu was warned by the US of its plans to kill Qassam Soleimani ahead of the drone strike, while Britain was only informed of the attack once the mission was underway. Well, of course Israel bloody knew. They would have been the ones behind it, ultimately. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was likely told of the US drone strike on General Qassam Soleimani before the attack. Stands back in amazement, catches breath. US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was understood to have briefed Israel ahead of time about their plans to kill the revered military leader who was the powerful head of Iran's elite Quds Force. Of course he did, because that's where he and the other elite Zionists in the American government are controlled from, and that includes Trump. Pompeo spoke to Netanyahu on the phone on Wednesday night, ostensibly to thank him for Israel's help after the attack on the US Embassy in Iraq, according to the Times of Israel. But on Thursday morning, hours before the attack in Baghdad, Netanyahu forewarned about very, very dramatic things happening in the region. He tweeted, I want to make one thing clear. We fully support all of the steps that the US has taken, as well as its full right to defend itself and its citizens. Moreover, we know that our region is stormy. Very, very dramatic things are happening in it. We are alert and we are monitoring the situation. Well, the reason the region is stormy and very, very dramatic things are happening in it is because of Israel, ultimately. We are in continuous contact with our great friend, the United States, including my conversation yesterday afternoon. Just hours later, the article continues, Soleimani and other top officials were killed in the airstrike, which could have far-reaching and catastrophic consequences. That's the plan for it to have far-reaching and catastrophic consequences. But it appears the US did not brief allies other than Israel of the impending attack, with Britain not given any notice ahead of the airstrike. Well, Britain and America are controlled by Israel, so it didn't need to. In a statement after Pompeo's call with Netanyahu, the US State Department said, 
Secretary Pompeo thanked Prime Minister Netanyahu for Israel's unwavering commitment to countering Iran's malign regional influence in its condemnation of the December 31st attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. The Secretary and Prime Minister reaffirmed the unbreakable bonds between the United States and Israel. Well, that's one way of putting it. After the strike, Netanyahu praised the U.S. and Donald Trump and gave his full support behind the killing, saying the President acted with determination strongly and swiftly. Pompeo has since briefed other foreign ministers in Britain, Germany and China, stressing that Trump was capturing a real and imminent threat to U.S. lives in the region. He also said the President is committed to de-escalating tensions despite the initial outcry after the attack. Load of crap, but that's what he said. Nah. What was this all about? Well, an attack on Iran, as I've said, has been long, long planned by America. When I first talked about this a long time ago to people, I was told, why would they want to attack Iran? Why would America and Britain want to attack Iran? They want to attack Iran. Well, they have. Israel is the answer, or rather the Sabatine Frankist cult which controls Israel, which I talk about in All Roads Lead to Israel, Part 1. Soleimani remaining in power didn't suit Israel because Soleimani actually fought Islamic State, as I said, by attacking West-backed proxy army rebels in Syria, doing Israel's bidding by attacking the Assad regime, while the media and Western governments were silent, and then when the Assad regime started shooting back at being shot at, then Western political leaders and politicians couldn't get to a microphone and camera quick enough. He's killing his own people, we've got to invade to protect the civilians by bombing and causing mayhem. Israel is the answer for another reason, and this brings in Syria and other countries in the Middle East that have been targeted since 2001, and this actually takes us back to the 1920s and the originator of political Zionism, known as revisionist Zionism or gun Zionism, controlled by Sabatine Frankism. I talk about the foreign policy of the West and the endless invasions and regime changes of countries in episode 49 where I place the Venezuelan conflict with America into this context. In the 1920s, a guy called Jair Jabotinsky proclaimed that Israeli land should extend much further to become a greater Israel, which would encompass Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, Iraq, Iran and Jordan. Israel already controls Saudi Arabia for historical reasons, as I explain in all roads lead to Israel, part one. Jabotinsky believed this could only be achieved by force. Israel seems to be a tiny country in the Middle East of no significance, but it's everywhere, as I've pointed out previously. In 1996, a group led by a guy called Richard Pearl produced a report for then and now leader of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, and part of the document talked about attacking Syria. It was called a clean break, a new strategy for securing the realm. It talked about removing Saddam Hussein in Iraq. This is 1996, and the containment of Syria by a proxy warfare, by a proxy army, as I've talked about, which is exactly what's happened. And talking about using the excuse of weapons of mass destruction. In September 2000, an organization created in 1997 called the Project for the New American Century, a think tank, watch the think tanks, dictated by political Zionism, what I call elite Zionism, produced a document called Rebuilding America's Defenses, Strategy, Forces and Resources for a New Century. The organization should have been called the Project for the New Israeli Century to highlight the real driving force of this organization's foreign policy. 
and the real driving force behind the mess in the Middle East and Near East. The people in this organization were either directly involved with the Bush administration or interfaced with it, such as creators of the organization Richard Pearl, who I mentioned just now, who was part of the Clean Break report, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Global Strategic Affairs under Reagan and William Crystal, former editor of Murdoch's Weekly Standard newspaper, Vice President and, in truth, President Dick Cheney, Defense Secretary Donna Rumsfeld, Deputy Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz, Douglas Feith or Feith, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy and Director of the organization, John Bolton, who was then Under Secretary of State for Arms Control and International Security Affairs, before becoming United States Ambassador to the United Nations in 2005, and later still National Security Advisor under Trump, before being replaced by Robert O'Brien. They all became known as neoconservatives or followers of neoconservatism, which is defined as a political movement born in the United States during the 1960s among liberal hawks, liberals the last thing they are, who became disenchanted with the increasingly pacifist foreign policy of the Democratic Party and the growing new left and counterculture, in particular the Vietnam protests. Some also began to question their liberal beliefs regarding domestic policies. Neoconservatives typically advocate the promotion of democracy, regime change in truth, and interventionism in international affairs including peace through strength by means of military force and are known for espousing disdain for communism and for political radicalism. Peace through strength by means of military force. That's exactly the mentality of Jair Jabotinsky, who believed that a greater Israel could only be achieved through force. Neocons don't advocate democracy, they advocate invasions and regime changes to a point of democracy, in inverted commas, West supporting and Israel supporting leadership, which suits them and Israel using the excuse of protecting democracy. See Iraq, Libya, Egypt, Venezuela, etc. The document said a number of very relevant things in terms of events since publication, including shaping the international security order in line with America's principles and interests, Israel's principles and interests. It said that peacekeeping missions demand American political leadership rather than that of the United Nations. In other words, America operating on its own rules and Israel's as opposed to the UN's. And it claimed that the United States must fight and decisively win multiple simultaneous major theater wars as a core mission. This is September 2000. These wars were intended to regime change countries to suit America and Israel same thing in this context. The document listed countries for such regime change. These were the greater Israel countries I mentioned just now, and others like Libya and North Korea and China. Bush's State of the Union speech in 2002 was written by David Frum, a scholar of another neoconservative think tank in America called the American Enterprise Institute. In the speech, an axis of evil was identified. North Korea, Iraq, and... Iran taken straight from the project for the New American Century document published two years earlier. People are talking about the potential for the conflict with Iran to be the trigger for World War III, and this has been the plan all along. Now, that's not to say it's necessarily going to be a nuclear conflict. There's various ways a war can play out. It doesn't necessarily have to be a full-on nuclear war. I'm not saying that won't happen. I'm not saying they won't do... I mean, these people are so psychopathic that, and crazy that if they feel that's necessary, 
they'll probably do that, but there's other ways to bring about a conflict without going straight to the nuclear route. But a world war has long been in the planning, whatever form it takes. The idea is for a massive global conflict to which can be offered the solution once the problem has been created in a reaction of desperation and, and exhaustion and chaos that's been caused as a result of a war, of a world government and world army to stop it ever happening again, even though those supporting it and publicly suggesting it will be partly responsible for making it happen in the first place. The world government would be unelected and would dictate to the unions like the European Union, which would themselves dictate to countries broken up into regions and smart cities. And the reason for smart cities I've talked about in episodes 10 and 11 in terms of the technology agenda. And the army would in fact be a means of imposing the world government's orders on any regional grouping who don't want to surrender rule over their geographical area, their region, to the world government. In fact, on this subject, the project for the New American Century document talks about satellites being used for space control. Satellites are planned for not only mass surveillance, but also beaming 5G Wi-Fi from space. We've talked about 5G in episodes 8, 12 and 22. One of the most important issues at the moment because it's being rolled out all over Britain and America and other places. But satellites are also planned to be part of this world army arsenal to be used if deemed necessary. I did say the world's run by psychopaths, didn't I? So if it's believed a country is not playing ball and the measures taken before that are not successful in that country or that region, that grouping, not surrendering to the orders of the world government, then space combat will be considered. Attacks coming from space, more accurately. We already have a de facto world government in the form of the international community, in other words, NATO countries in Israel, and a de facto world army in the form of NATO. The international community, or rather certain countries within list of NATO countries, controlled by Israel, decide a certain regime is not playing ball, or that they want to attack a certain regime and they send NATO in. That happens now already. What I'm talking about is just an official version of that. Another agenda goal realised from this conflict would be further militarisation of law enforcement. Obviously that would happen during a war. And the idea would be to keep that in place after the war, using the excuse of the war. I mean, the United States law enforcement it virtually is the military already anyway. And the US has long been fusing law enforcement into the military, not least through its 1033 programme. And a world war would justify massively more militarization of police powers, which is all part of building the 1984 society I've talked about before. We keep being told about dangerous Iran, when its nuclear arsenal is fractional compared to that of America, Britain and Israel. And it's never conflicted militarily with anyone in 200 years. It's never invaded anyone in its entire history. If you look at a list of countries that America and Britain have invaded... I don't know how many reams of paper would be necessary to write them all down. I said Israel was the force behind all this. And of course, Trump is surrounded by elite Zionist neocons. And they will ideally want a situation where Iran reacts. And then Trump can then say, Oh, well, I know I said in my election campaign that I would 
not interfere in the affairs of other countries. And I would stop all these endless invasions and wars. But Iran's attacked us. I mean, what choice do I have now? And the idea then would be to bring people on board because of that. And so that gets him in the clear. At least to some of the population anyway. If Iran don't react militarily, then it will be disastrous for Trump election-wise, given that he's attacked Syria on the basis of a made-up chemical attack ordered by Assad when he had no reason to do that. Because, And he is intelligent enough to realize that. He's not an idiot like Trump. So there's no reason for him to have ordered that attack. But that was used as the excuse to bomb Syria. So, he's done that, and of course now we've got this attack on Iran, so the idea that Trump would not intervene in the affairs of other countries was quite obviously a lie, just to get him elected. And vast swathes of the alternative media jumped on the Trump bandwagon, partly for that reason. You've only got to look at the elite Zionist network that he surrounded himself with to know that that was never going to happen. Because the ultra-Zionist network will push and push and push for more conflict in the Middle East. And sanctions have been imposed on Iran. And it's just a case of what else can we do to try to prod and poke and provoke Iran into reacting. And then using that as an excuse to conflict with them. So we'll see where it goes from here. But World War Three, or any war can only happen with the support of the people. It's like they said in the 60s, what if there was a war and nobody turned up? And that goes for both sides, by the way. People say, when you say that, well, you can't just let our country be attacked. No, no, I'm talking about nobody turning up on either side. Then there would be no conflict, because the people that call them are watching the sport on the White House telly in Downing Street and in the Israeli office while young men and women fight the wars. If they, if those young men and women, and older as well, don't, those leaders have no means to bring about their conflict however much they want to. And governments, arms companies, military, they can only achieve their agenda if we allow them to do so. And getting informed about the reality of Israel-supported conflicts, because that's what they are, Syria, Libya, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Venezuela, regime change, Egypt, all supported by Israel, all instigated by Israel ultimately. Getting informed about the reality of that is, and therefore, less and less people will support those conflicts. That's the answer. The next subject this week is another story involving Israel. It's everywhere, Israel. Everywhere. Hence the name of my most recent episode before this one, All Roads Lead to Israel. This is in the Daily Mail. Jeffrey Epstein's socialite madam, Ghislaine Maxwell, is being hidden from the FBI in a series of safe houses because of the information she has on powerful people. An explosive new report has asserted that deceased sex criminal Jeffrey Epstein and his alleged Madame Ghislaine Maxwell were foreign intelligence assets and that she is currently hiding in a safe house in Israel. 
Ghislaine is protected. She and Jeffrey were assets of sorts for multiple foreign governments. They would trade information about the powerful people caught in his net, called at Epstein's house, an unnamed source told page 6. Maxwell, 58, has been accused in lawsuits of procuring underage girls for Epstein to sexually traffic among his wealthy and powerful friends and is reportedly the subject of an ongoing FBI probe. She was always denied any wrongdoing. Her attorney did not immediately respond to an inquiry from DailyMail.com on Wednesday evening. After Epstein's re-arrest last year and death behind bars in August, Maxwell has remained out of sight and aware about unknown. Now the page six source claims she is being protected by powerful foreign interests like Israel. She is not in the US, she moves around. She is sometimes in the UK, but most often in other countries such as Israel, where her powerful contacts have provided her with safe houses and protection, the source said. Maxwell is being protected because of the information she has on the world's most powerful people, the source said. The source also claimed that Prince Andrew begged Maxwell to come forward and clear his name after Virginia Roberts Gufrey claimed Epstein forced her to have sex with the royal when she was 17. Prince Andrew, 59, strenuously denies having sex with Roberts and claims he can't remember meeting her despite a photograph of him with his arm around her that was of course part of that disastrous tv interview i mean car crash it wasn't a car crash it was a scrapyard of an interview the article goes on andrew pleaded with glane to publicly defend him she carefully considered it but decided no good would come of it if she came forward it is not in her best interest the source told page six andrew resigned from royal duties after giving a disastrous interview on newsnight in november he didn't resign he was sacked from royal duties because he was too much of a liability it is not the first time that Epstein has been tied to a foreign intelligence service. Rumours have long circulated that Epstein secretly took videos of his rich and powerful friends having sex with underage girls, either for financial blackmail or as leverage for a foreign intelligence service. Israel's. So far, however, the FBI has not publicly confirmed whether any such blackmail material was recovered in raids on his properties. Since Epstein's arrest on federal sex trafficking charges in July, Maxwell has remained out of sight, save for photos that purported to show her at an In-N-Out burger in Los Angeles. DailyMail.com revealed that those photos were staged, possibly to throw investigators off her trail. That's what the paper says anyway at least born in france maxwell is both a u.s citizen and british subject her family's alleged ties to israel's a national intelligence service mossad have been well documented maxwell's father robert maxwell was a czech-born british media mogul whose financial fraud in raiding the mirror group pension fund was discovered after his death in 1991 also a british member of parliament robert maxwell reportedly had ties to british intelligence the soviet kgb and mossad and was suspected of being a double or even triple agent by british foreign office officials. After his mysterious death on his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine of the Canary Islands in 1991, Robert Maxwell was buried in Jerusalem with high honours on a Mount of Olives, interestingly, with Israel's Prime Minister and multiple current and former heads of Israeli intelligence services in attendance at the funeral. His favourite daughter Ghislaine first met Epstein in the early 1990s at a party in New York City. The two had a romantic relationship for several years, but the exact nature of their relationship over the following decades remains unclear. Epstein's household staff have described her as Lady of the House and sworn in depositions that she was at the centre of managing his household affairs. They were like partners in business and crime, very possibly. Yanis Banasiak, Epstein's house manager, said in a deposition, Epstein's butler, Alfredo Rodriguez, described Ghislaine Maxwell in a deposition as the boss. Epstein's accusers have said that Maxwell's authority extended to managing the complex logistics of his perverse activities with girls as young as 14. She orchestrated the whole thing for Jeffrey, said Sarah Ransom, one of some two dozen women who spoke out before a federal judge in New York in August. 
Some of the most serious allegations have come from Virginia Roberts-Giuffre, who accused Maxwell in a lawsuit of luring her to become an international sex slave for Epstein and his pals. Roberts says she was 16 or 17 in the summer of 2000 and working as a towel girl at Mar-a-Lago, when Maxwell approached her, eventually leading to her being flown around the world on Epstein's Lolita Express. Roberts recently unsealed a lawsuit claims that Maxwell actively took part in recruiting underage girls and young women for sex with Epstein as well as scheduling the girls to come over and maintaining a list of the girls and their phone number. Maxwell has strenuously denied in the past that she was involved in criminal sex trafficking or any other sex crimes. After Epstein took a sweetheart plea deal in 2008 to state charges of procuring for prostitution and served a one-year jail sentence in Florida, Maxwell and Epstein were no longer spotted together at public events. She remained active on the New York social scene for several years, however, until mounting lawsuits and allegations began to draw harsher scrutiny. In April 2016, the New York townhouse where she had lived was sold for $15 million and around the fall of 2016, she was no longer seen or photographed publicly. She was last spotted publicly at a social event in Geneva, Switzerland on June the 8th, less than a month prior to Epstein's re-arrest in the United States. Earlier this week, the Epstein accused of Virginia Roberts called for Maxwell to be brought forward to face the justice system. How is anyone, friend or family member, hiding such a monster? 99% of the population were turning to blame Maxwell. Who's hiding who and why? Roberts tweeted. Maxwell's downfall will be her arrogance in her eyes. She's always above the law, Roberts added. She is diabolically evil. I would suggest to whoever is hiding her or knows whereabouts she is to turn her in as she'd easily throw anyone who gets in her way under the bus, she continued. The article continues. Epstein died in federal custody in August while facing sex trafficking charges. His death was ruled as suicide by New York City's medical examiner, but his lawyers have disputed that finding. Anyone with a brain would dispute that finding. Epstein's death at age 66 came a little over a month after he was arrested and charged with trafficking dozens of underage girls as young as 14 from at least 2002 to 2005. Prosecutors said he recruited girls to give him massages which became sexual in nature. Well, it's no surprise that Glenn Maxwell is a foreign intelligence asset, according to this report, because her father, British media magnate and politician Robert Maxwell, was a foreign intelligence asset as the article says and according to a book published in 2003 entitled Robert Maxwell Israel super spy the life and murder of a media mogul Maxwell was also a spy for Mossad the Israeli intelligence service Maxwell sold the promise software which I talked about in part two of all roads lead to Israel which together with Intel chips the company Intel Intel inside Israel inside allows for covert surveillance and backdoor access into computer systems of intelligence agencies across the world because it was sold. This is ironic given countries like Russia are accused without any evidence of cyber hacking and influencing elections. Israel massively influences American politics, not least through stunning amounts of political campaign contributions and organizations like the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. According to the book, Maxwell recruited Republican Senator John Tower to acquire top-secret cutting-edge technology for Israel being developed at Los Alamos in America, the national laboratory involved in research and development of nuclear weaponry, genome mapping, DNA sequencing, technology development, national security, space exploration, nuclear fusion, renewable energy, medicine, nanotechnology and supercomputing and information sciences. Basically, it's a de facto intelligence agency. It's not called that, but it's basically what it is in America which is overseen by the U.S. Department of Energy. I said in part two of All Roads Lead to Israel, that Israel is being developed as a global technology super hub because the end game agenda of the Sabatine Frankist cult, which runs Israel, and intelligence agencies the world over, 
who I talk about in part one of War Oaks Lead to Israel, this cult, is for all humanity to be technologically controlled via technology on and in the body like nanotechnology, and for this technology to be run by artificial intelligence, and for this smart grid, known as, also known as the cloud, to be controlled out of Israel. This is what the tech experts of Silicon Valley, a project with the Pentagon, which is connected to the US Department of Defense, which is itself owned by this Sabatine Frankist cult, are talking about the merging of humans with technology controlled by artificial intelligence. What they don't tell you is this whole technological network will be controlled out of Israel. I talked to them. It's no surprise either that convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein would be friends with an Israeli intelligence asset whose father was fundamentally involved with Israeli intelligence activities. Because, as I explained in part one of All Roads Lead to Israel, the Sabatine Frankist cult is constantly abusing children. It's a satanic cult for which inversion of morality and decency is its DNA. So, Glenn Maxwell being, as this article talks about, accused in lawsuits of procuring underage girls for Epstein to sexually traffic among his wealthy and powerful friends, is no surprise if it's true, because it's par for the course for the cult which runs Israeli intelligence. Maxwell is being protected because she knows dirty secrets of the world's most powerful people and again this is no surprise because she's an Israeli intelligence asset and Israel is fundamentally central to the control of politics, banking, corporations, media, intelligence, security and military and more. This Sabatine Frankist cult in other words. Prince Andrew's car crash interview on BBC Newsnight where he, sorry, Prince Andrew's scrapyard interview on BBC Newsnight where he pathetically attempted to distance himself from allegations against him by a woman called Virginia Robert Scoofer has made many people open their minds to the possibility that some of the royal family and people who surround them are not the moral bastions they might seem to be, as I've said before. I've talked about that in episode 27. In this scrapyard interview, Prince Andrew denied meeting Virginia Roberts, despite a photo of him with his arm around her, not being able to sweat when photos exist of him sweating profusely, of not partying when photos show him partying in Tramp's nightclub to celebrate the 40th birthday of Robert Maxwell, and of not being in tramps with Roberts when, according to Tatler magazine, who sent a photographer to the nightclub, in true tramp fashion, the partying continued until 4am. It's unclear whether Andrew stayed to the end, but when asked during his BBC interview about his party prince reputation, he replied, well, I think that's also a bit of a stretch. I don't know why I've collected that title, because I don't, I never really have parted when there's photos that show him partying. And if you're telling the truth, you don't have to lie and you certainly and you certainly don't need to lie with a scrapyard of an interview another friend of the royals as he admitted in his own words was jimmy savile a record-breaking paedophile in britain who it was claimed according to a source in the express in 2013 was also part of a satanic ring so there's a convicted paedophile in america in jeffrey epstein friend of Prince Andrew and a known record-breaking paedophile in Britain, in Jimmy Savile, a friend of Prince Charles. And yet the mainstream media and the police never question or make this connection, or if they do, they didn't follow up on it. It's the alternative media, as ever, that has to ask crucial questions. Convicted paedophile Rolf Harris was another friend of the royals. What is it with the royals and paedophilia? Now, here's an interesting connection. Savile was also very close to Israel and travelled to Israel. Two paedophiles, one convicted, the other well known for being so while he was alive, both close to Israel. This again is no surprise because of the nature of the cult which runs Israel. This is the mentality of those ultimately running our world and when people realise that then the world takes on a very different and much simpler clarity.
the next subject this week is political correctness, specifically inclusivity. This is in the Daily Mail. Schools too afraid to help white boys in the lakes deemed not ethnic enough. This lunacy helps no one, writes Trevor Phillips, former head of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. There's an irony in Trevor Phillips being the former head of the Equality and Human Rights Commission because he accepted an honour from the Queen and, of course, the royal family is one of the most racist institutions in the world because not only do you have to be white, you know, obviously the recent marrying into the family of Meghan Markle has changed that, but up till now they've been white and still basically a white family. But you have to follow at least officially one religion and, in many cases, come from one bloodline. Anyway, the article says, Equality of opportunity is a core principle of our democratic society, yet all too often the achievement of this noble goal is undermined by institutional virtue signalling, self-righteous guilt-tripping and ideological posturing. Self-righteous guilt-tripping. That alludes to partly at least white people who believe that because of what the British Empire did in the past, that white people should feel guilty today. (laughs) But, of course, the obvious problem with that is the white people around today didn't do what the British Empire did. They weren't there at the time. Who says that woke, as it's become known, woke, not awake. So this is how flawed the ideology is. They can't even use the right grammar. The woke mentality, the progressive mentality. I didn't claim it makes sense. The article goes on. As a result, instead of meeting genuine needs, many policymakers, be they politicians, civil servants, media bosses, or education chiefs, indulge in the worst kind of stereotyping where all ethnic minorities are treated as perennial victims in need of support and white people are regarded as potential oppressors who deserve to be either hectored or neglected. Two very different examples of this kind of behaviour emerged this week, both telling about a neurosis over race and the damage it does. The first is the incendiary route over the decision by two leading public schools, Dulwich and Winchester, to reject a large philanthropic donations worth more than £1 million to fund scholarships for talented white boys from poor backgrounds. The donations were offered by distinguished academic Sir Brian Thwaites, a former long-serving principal of Westfield College, part of the University of London, who is rightly concerned about Britain's severe problem with the underperforming white cohort in schools. The second was when Richard Leaf, chief executive of the Lake District National Park Authority, stated that the region should be made more accessible to the disabled and the ethnic minorities. This follows the decision by his park authority to run a four-mile tarmac path through Woodland at Keswick to improve access. In each case, the people behind these decisions will have thought of themselves as progressive, but their approach is far from enlightened. To take the school story, which appeared in Standpoint magazine, I came to know Sir Brian well in the 70s when I was president of the Student Union at the University of London. I can testify that he is a man of integrity and compassion motivated by a real determination to raise standards for all. This is, of course, written by Trevor Phillips, as I said. He is also correct in his analysis about the need to help deprived white boys. All recent studies show that they do worse at school than almost all other ethnic groups and are significantly less likely to go to university. Their social exclusion can perhaps be seen in its most graphic in high-achieving fee-paying schools in London. Fewer than 45% of pupils at such places are white. That's partly because Chinese and Russian and African billionaires can afford the fees, but also because poor immigrant parents are prepared to work double and triple shifts to give their kids the education they themselves could never have dreamed of enjoying. White British people work hard as well, though. Let's not forget that. 
So Bryer's wish to promote social mobility through a number of scholarships is wholly justified, nor is there anything unorthodox about wanting to provide financial backing to pupils from certain ethnic groups which face disadvantages in the system. After all, the rap star Stormzy has established a number of scholarships exclusively for black students at Cambridge University. Other charities have done the same. So Brian's proposal was certainly not illegal under current equality legislation. As one of the authors of the 2010 Equality Act in my then role as head of the Equality and Human Rights Commission, I can state categorically that in circumstances where a racial group suffering disadvantage is white, then there is no bar in doing for them exactly what we would do for black and ethnic minority groups. Contrary to what some progressives seem to believe, the Equality Act is not the judicial preserve of people of colour. I love that, people of colour, that's the new politically correct term for black or half-caste or Hispanic. The article continues, It is not a kind of being nice to blacks charter, but a measure that aims to bring fairness for all. Yet that reality is being ignored by organisations such as Dulwich and Winchester. The two schools were too terrified of accusations and bigotry to accept surprise generosity. In their anxious minds, their very use of the term white probably conjured up images of the far-right and aggressive English nationalism. Bristling with indignation, Dulwich posted that its community is profoundly diverse. In the same tone, Winchester proclaimed the school does not see how discrimination on grounds of a boy's colour could ever be compatible with its values. One state school has proved less squeamish and has happily accepted surprise at offer of funding. Ironically, we're not surprisingly, the school's head teacher is black. Just a point on where it says, in their anxious minds, the very use of the term white probably conjured up images of the far right and aggressive English nationalism. The terms far right and white and nationalism have been merged. So that anyone talking about the obvious implications of migration and anyone talking about sovereignty and saying it's okay to be white and all that kind of thing is associated with the far right. But the far left, in terms of progressive tyranny, is fast becoming what the right traditionally was. The new left is the old right, and I've gone into more detail about that in a book I've just finished writing, and it's at the printers now, which will be out very soon, and it's pay-per-view in print, which might give you an idea of what it is, but it's so much more than that. And I'll explain more about that closer to publication. Anyway, the article continues. The loudly vaunted scruples of the liberal elitists illustrate a worrying set of double standards. Despite their fixation with ethnic minority victimhood, they showed little understanding of the lives of the British working class. The term white privilege is so casually banded about among left-wing intellectuals. Yet most low-paid workers are white, and they find it hard to make sense of the idea that their skin colour imbues them with any kind of privilege. But neurosis about race means that guilt and condescension can be found everywhere in our public life, as the Lake District story shows. We are deficient in terms of black and ethnic minority communities, declared Richard Leaf, a view that chimes with a recent report which described the Lake District as an exclusive mainly white, mainly middle class club. Now Mr Leaf is probably well-meaning and his remarks may have been misinterpreted in his belief that the Lake District should be enjoyed by as many people as possible is commendable. Yet once again the youngster's rhetoric feeds into the theme of ethnic minority victimhood with the implication that like children, we people of colour have to be guided by the benevolent hand of the state. I myself adore the Lake District and have tried to pass that on to others. When I was head of the Commission for Racial Equality, I organised summer camps to Cumbria to give the kids the chance to mix with others of different backgrounds and to see in England they would never discover otherwise. Many said it changed their lives. I will never forget the time I was in a tea shop in Kendall 20 years ago and another customer, an elderly lady, said to me in a friendly tone, we haven't seen many coloured people like you up here since the Americans during the war. When I told this story to a black activist, friendly upbraided me. I've not seen that word before, upbraided. It means basically pull someone up on 
saying something or doing something. He upbraided me for not reprimanding her over her outdated language. He upbraided me for not reprimanding her over her outdated language. But I knew there was no hostility about her, only warmth in the true welcoming spirit of the Lake District. And the answer is to encourage people of whatever race to go there and experience that. People respond to that warmth, not tarmac. There's a key point he makes there, kind of indirectly, which is that political correctness does not do context. The term coloured was not used as a insult. It was used as a description in a warm, friendly tone. The deep anxiety... The article continues, the deep anxiety in our political and media classes is not reflected among most British people who, generally speaking, want to get on with their neighbours, whatever their race. Yet the squeamishness about race can have disastrous consequences as terrible crimes are overlooked, such as the long-running refusal by the authorities to face up to the reality of Asian predatory sex scans on the streets of towns such as Rotherham and Telford. The same shameful silence can be found in the dishonesty and self-delusion about the soaring incidents of knife crime. Ethnicity plays a critical role here, for the overwhelming majority of both perpetrators and victims are young black men. In a corner of North London where I grew up, the rate for murder and violence last year was 10 times the average for England, while just 16% of the local population is white British. And how much of that gang rape and other crime would not have happened in Britain and especially places like Sweden? Was migration not the free-for-all that it's become? in Britain, Sweden and other countries but the law enforcement, certain people within it don't want to be called racist they prefer to be politically correct rather than correct and through that they are responsible partly for the abuse and the violence in the corner of North London where I grew up, the rate for murder and violence last year was 10 times the average for England, while just 16% of the local population is white British. Yet the race aspect is constantly, almost feverishly downplayed by liberals who would rather grumble about poverty or lack of youth clubs. Isn't it interesting, whenever you hear a story about kids living in an area where there's not much to do in terms of activities and there's nowhere for them to play, you always hear the line, the answer is more youth clubs. Is that the only answer? Is there not other solutions we can come up with? One of which is, by the way, getting kids off technology. Stopping kids being addicted to technology. Technology addiction now is being treated in the same way as drink or drug addiction. This is why you'll see kids, adults as well, but you'll see kids and young people, they'll put their phone down and then within three to five seconds they'll pick it back up again because it's an addiction. They don't need to pick it back up. It's an addiction. The brain has been stimulated to need the fix from the technology constantly. And I talk about the agenda behind technology in episodes 10 and 11. The article continues. But none of this mayhem is taking place in the left-behind seaside towns of Kent or the devastated industrial wastelands of South Wales or the North East. The hand-wringing over these assassinations does nothing to tackle the terrifying surge in violence. We need hard-headed realism about our racial differences and the people who most want to see that realism are people of colour. And the first line of that article is interesting. It talks about equality of opportunity. Trevor Phillips makes a great point. In society now, because of the progressives, we see a push constantly for equality of outcome. This is classic Marxism, cultural Marxism we're seeing now, as I explain in All Roads Lead to Israel, part one, where everybody gets the same no matter what, instead of equality of opportunity, where people use their own initiative, motivation and creativity to try to succeed. Without incentive, there's no motivation, and without motivation, there's no progress. 
part of the Marxist ideology, as described by Saul Alinsky, is to personalize the cause of a nation's problems and thereby polarize and factionalize society, leading to divide and rule. Everyone who sees the personalized target, the fake liberal left in America being a classic example, is the problem, unites against a common enemy and a common cause of opposing and attacking the enemy, while the real enemy are the people in general, the elite pulling the strings, are missed amidst the focus on the enemy. Everyone the same is a classic trait of Marxism and communism. Everyone thinking the same. Marxism and communism basically the same thing. And I talk in All Roads Lead to Israel about a Jewish rabbi who wrote a book saying that Marxism was basically the creation of this Sabbatean Frankist cult. The article goes on. This story is also a classic example of reverse racism, a concept whereby the plan to tackle racism is to do it in reverse by favouring those previously oppressed or those in the minority suffering abuse over the abusers or oppressors race. The problem with this is that not everyone in the race of the abusers or oppressors are racist, and this is the Achilles heel of reverse racism. Everyone should be treated equally. Racism is not countered by being racist in reverse, as in the case of this story with schools not helping white boys are holding non-white-only events, which is something else that, that happens in society now. Racism is countered by treating everyone equally and with respect. It's interesting to think that progressives think constantly about colour, black, brown, half-caste, white, but they never see shades of grey. They don't see the fact that in every racial, religious and cultural group there are nice people, okay people, and psychopaths. It's not the race, religion or culture which defines a person's state of being, it's the person themselves and their state of perception. Once you start a sentence with all about any group, you're already wrong before you've got the second word out. In terms of the Lake District not being popular enough for non-white people, where's the problem? Where's the problem in that? Anyone can go there. People make a choice to go there or not go there. There's no need to encourage other racial groups to go there. They've made the choice not to go there as much as white people. So if they've made that choice, where's the problem? Freedom is about choice. Why do you need to encourage people to make a choice? If you're trying to encourage people to make a choice, you're not allowing them to make a totally free choice. Which is, in this case other ethnic groups apart from white making the choice not to go there as much as white people. Including non-white people more means excluding white people more. And that's racism. That's where this reverse racism comes from. That's the root of it. Understanding that racism is not a racial or cultural problem but a perceptual problem is the answer. The last subject this week is smart technology. Again, another story that implicates Israel, as I said. This is in the Daily Mail. This says, Will this be the decade smart technology takes over our homes? We reveal the gadgets already growing in popularity and future trends. Well, it's an interesting question because this is the decade that exactly that is designed to happen, not just taking over our homes, but taking over all human minds. People like Google executive Ray Kurzweil have said he predicts that by 2030, all human minds will be connected to the cloud. And... It's very easy to be correct with predictions as he has before when he knows what the plan is. And Google, of course, Silicon Valley, controlled by Pentagon and the Department of Defense, which is itself controlled by the Sabatine Frankist cult. As I detail in pay-per-view in print, 
So this is the article. Will this be the decade smart technology takes over our homes? We reveal the gadgets already growing in popularity and future trends. Smart home technology has become increasingly popular in the latter half of the last decade and the 2020s could see it become even more mainstream. Yes, that's the plan. Many of the products are designed with the promise to make life easier and can help increase the security of a home, with the likes of smart locks, doorbells and cameras becoming increasingly popular. Smart technology developers also claim it can help people save money. For example, British Gas says that its Hive smart thermostat could save users up to £120 a year on energy bills. Technology is expected to play an even bigger part in home security in 2020 with more residential properties equipping themselves with solutions that can be accessed remotely via mobile devices including smartphones, tablets and laptops. Dr. Stefan George, Managing Director of the Master Locksmiths Association, said the trend for creating smart homes will continue into 2020, with people integrating more technology into managing their homes. Heating, entertainment systems, appliances and security can all be smart enabled and controlled via mobile devices. I talk about the reason for smart technology in homes in episode 50. Smart wireless home security systems are becoming increasingly common as prices drop and technology improves, the quote says. The article goes on. With new gadgets hitting the market at speed, this is money with help from technology experts have taken a look at smart home trends of the past decade and what trends are likely to crop up in the next 10 years. What is smart technology used for? The article says, well, ultimately to create this smart grid network in the end plan to control all human minds but you won't find that in a newspaper the article says smart home technology can be useful for a number of reasons and no longer viewed as something from a sci-fi movie or too expensive for a typical household why does so much of what happens in movies and tv and novels happen because often the writers and producers have access to the agenda and so they write movies and TV that portray that because once the mind has been subjected to imagery enough times of a particular concept then it becomes familiar and so when it happens for real it either seems natural or normal or the resistance to it is massively diminished or you make it seem really cool and yeah I want that so when it happens people go for it Um, how these Writers and producers sleep at night, I don't know. The article goes on. While it can help people manage the security of their home better, or even just find it easier to do everyday tasks, such as turning on and off the lights, because that's difficult, isn't it? The implications of how it can be used go even further. It can help the most vulnerable in society, such as the elderly or the disabled, retain their independence. This is the way this technology is brought in, as I've said before. What you do is you target a specific group, you exploit a specific group, and say it could help these people, therefore it's a good idea, and then you expand out from there. Anna Moss, retail manager at Cornwall Insight, said one example of a personalised service that is available is a series of sensors used in the home of an elderly person to provide better independence. See, now that is a good idea. Technology that can help people that have problems with the brain and so they can't move their arms and so they need mechanical arms or they've had an injury and so they need to amputate the arm or whatever having a mechanical arm is a good idea but in those situations as long as it stays like that Anna Moss says if they miss their typical trigger points for example a morning cup of tea it is flagged to a carer or family member if they miss several usual timings in one day for example lunch and dinner or turning evening lights on a more serious alert is sent out to check in with the person see now that is a good idea but what this is all about 
is building a surveillance network. And it's not about keeping track to help people. It's keeping track to surveil people, to control people. That's what it's ultimately about in terms of the bigger picture of it. The article goes on. This suggests that smart security is not reserved for just the young in society, but also older generations who may be relying on the technology to help them. There is a wide range of smart technology products on the market, but some are more popular than others. Devices that have become popular. Why are they popular? Because the mass of the people don't know what they're really about. And the radiation emitted from them, which I've talked about in episode 44.2 and episodes 8, 12, and 22, and other episodes. This is Money has listed some of the most familiar devices below. Smart Doorbell. One of the most popular smart home tech devices is the Smart Doorbell, which was made popular by Ring. The doorbells come with a camera attached which enables users to see who was at the door before they answer it. The devices also come with access to an app which allows them to see who was at the door even when they are out. The app also means users can answer the door when they are away from home. Nothing can go wrong there. And many come with speakers attached letting people speak to the person who was rung the bell. See, they have to sell it to people, citing the benefits. That's the way they do it. They don't tell them the bigger picture of what it's for. They just isolate it to that particular piece of technology. Smart door lock. Another popular product is the smart door lock, which enables owners to unlock and lock their door remotely. Some locks are programmed to open when the owner is a certain distance away from the front door, whilst others can be operated by a keypad or fob. However, those interested in getting one should do their research. Well, that part's bloody true. That's the truest thing in this article. First, as not all doors will support the technology and could even do damage if not properly installed, you might also need to notify your insurer. 3. Smart thermostats. Smart thermostats are another gadget that have become increasingly common in households across the country. The devices can help users save money by learning habits and automatically adjust to the preferred temperature at certain points of the day. Many suppliers and even new boilers may come with one of the devices for free but need to be hooked up by a professional. Smart meters are not on the list. So whether that means they're not as popular as they're planned to be, I don't know. If that's the case, that's a good thing. But they're not on the list. Smart light bulbs are another invention gaining in popularity. The bulbs can be voice activated and controlled via an app. This is useful for families going on holiday who want to leave some lights on in the evenings to make it look like they are home. Can they just turn the lights on before they leave? Philips Hue light bulbs are a make that come in different colours and can be set to come on gradually in the mornings to wake someone up naturally. Smart alarms. Smart alarms allow users to get real-time notifications to their smartphone or tablet when someone enters a room, opens a window, or sets off the siren. They can be wired into the mains with a battery backup that lasts for 24 hours should it fail for any reason, while many also come in a battery form as well for those who do not want to connect to the mains. What about smart security? One of the main concerns customers have about having smart technology installed is it could leave them vulnerable to hacking. The fear of having data stolen is an obstacle to the market with a quarter of people saying privacy concerns are one reason for not getting a smart device according to a study by Price Waterhouse Cooper. See, this is the thing. Privacy and security concerns are absolutely valid. But the one thing you never hear talked about in mainstream articles, and if they do, it's right at the end with a paragraph after saying this official health organization says nothing to worry about, is the radiation, as I said just now. The effect on health and the effect on the brain of being exposed to too much smart radiation, potentially. They never talk about that. Mostly because the journalists don't know. 
The article continues, the fear of having data stolen is an obstacle to the market with a quarter of people saying privacy concerns are one reason we're not getting a smart device. However, action fraud revealed that very few cases of this happening have actually been reported to them. For those who already have smart technology and want to ensure they can stay safe, don't get it, they can follow this guide on how to stay secure. Another issue that has prevented some people from, I mean, how did we live before smart technology? How did we survive? Another issue that has prevented some people from updating their homes is that many of the gadgets are made by different providers and therefore don't communicate with one another. That's all part of the smart grid is that every piece of technology that's smart connects with every other piece of technology that's smart to create this global grid. In the end, a global grid. The article goes on. As they are each running their own software, they cannot talk to one another, meaning customers with many gadgets rely on lots of different apps to control their home rather than just one which can control everything. Well, that will happen in the end because that's the plan. However, Google, Amazon and Apple have recently announced they have all teamed up to make it easier for their products to be used together. And exactly as I just said, I've not read that line before, but there we are. Dr. Stefan George added, issues with the security of the technology itself will be a major theme for 2020 with encryption becoming a huge focus. Consumers are increasingly concerned about the security of the actual technology they're using. Many are reluctant to introduce smart technology into their homes to avoid compromising security. And a lot more would be reluctant to introduce smart technology into their homes if they knew that it compromises health, especially on the scale that this article is talking about bit if the smart technology was integrated into homes on that scale. The quote continues. Fears that Alexa, Google Home and other smart devices are listening in and recording conversations and data are fueling concerns as well as the risk of mobile apps being interfered with and mobile signals intercepted and used illicitly. When people invest in technology, especially security technology, they want to know but it's not having the reverse effect and compromising their safety. Well, yes. Unfortunately, smart technology does especially in terms of health. Wireless signals and routers can be hacked. Keyless cars, for instance, are an easy target with devices that can pick up the signal from key fobs allowing cars to be driven off in minutes. Unlike a traditional mechanical lock where only one property is affected if the key is copied or compromised, in the case of smart locks, if a bypass or hack of vulnerability of a particular smart lock, smart lock, smart lock, is, lock is distancy with this type of lock is vulnerable. Better get one then. In the coming decade, there is only going to be more products with the word smart attached. Well, that's true. Entering the market, potentially forever changing the way we run a home. One of the main features that is predicted to become a mainstay over the next years is artificial intelligence. That's what's designed to run this smart grid. Although this is already something that most people are aware of, most of the current AI commonplace in a home is voice activated. Like the assistants, the personal assistants like Siri and others which have been seed funded by DARPA, the technology development arm of the Pentagon, controlled by the Sabatian Frankist cult. But in the future, the next evolution, but, the, but they've only done it because they care and they want to help us manage our lives easier. That's the kind of people they are, you see. But in the future, the next evolution will be of machine learning, where AI enables the technology to automatically learn and improve based on its experience, as well as the data it collects and analyzes. This could lead to devices making decisions without human permission. The technology in the energy market is evolving, says Moss, and we are likely to see AI come into its own. The ability to allow each item of tech to link up to each other to provide one connected home will enable customers to personalize their tech and services. 
Once reserved for James Bond movies, the article continues, fingerprint door locks and facial recognition software is also now becoming the norm in the smart security sector and is set to become even more popular in the future. George said, a fingerprint door lock works by recognizing the unique fingerprints of a select group of authorized personnel or residents and using them to unlock doors and provide access to a property. The cost of this technology used to be prohibitively expensive, which limited its application, but now fingerprint locks are widely available and more accessible. The MLA reckons installing a hybrid system that incorporates your traditional mechanical lock alongside a biometric one to provide the best of both worlds and to ensure the biometric system can be bypassed and the door is still used when and if the power goes down. The article continues. Another trend that's likely to become more popular is the smart kitchen, including smart fridges, which are one of the newest fads. Many come with cameras inside of the fridge, allowing owners to see in at any time, which is to help users with their food shop as they are able to see what they need to buy at any given moment. I've said before that part of this network, as I talk about in episode 50, is to create a situation where if you don't keep authority happy, then they will stop you having access to even home appliances like the fridge and if you do use the fridge there'll be a camera in there that will note that you've used it when you're not given permission to use it and you'll have further consequences i've said that before and now this article is talking about it in the sense that there will be cameras inside fridges because the idea is that people will live not in houses as we have now traditionally but in human settlement zones which in within which there will be flats of ridiculously small size narrow size and total surveillance through smart and other technology the idea is to get rid of homes as we've known them up to this point the article goes on Another trend that is likely to become more popular is the smart kitchen including smart fridges which are one of the newest fads some of the new fridges also have inbuilt TV screens where customers can watch shows or listen to the radio. Despite the advances made, some experts believe the technology currently used is still in its primary stages. Moss added, the connected smart market is currently focused on smart home entertainment and wearable technology. It is typically sold as a one-off standalone purchase. It is early days for the connected home. We are only starting to see elements of the technology that will be in customers' homes in the next decade. However, at the moment, the available technology is hard to integrate and lacks the automation that is likely to come in the following years. Having smart technology, the article says, could also help reduce your insurance premiums in the future as your home is likely to be more protected. There's two worlds, see? There's the world that we're given through the media and through all the official sources of information, and then there's an understanding of the agenda for society. And once you can access that, either by being an insider or through research, then you know what's coming before it happens. And the whole reason for pay-per-view and pay-per-view in print and the alternative media in general, the best of it, that is, is to inform people about what's planned so there can be an intervention. The plan is not to predict the future. The plan is to inform people of the planned future so there can be an intervention so that future doesn't happen. And that's what, as I said, pay-per-view is all about. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.